Thanks to all of my backup men there. I remember one Sunday years ago at Believer's Chapel where I was the only guy on the platform, so I led the singing, read the scripture, did the greeting, and preached. And strangely enough, we all survived. I, I have to say, I think it was Sam, was it not, that was talking about the other kid at camp? I was the other kid at camp. One time we were meeting in this, it was a condemned orphanage. And they had all these little rooms. And I happened to realize that I had the power panel for the entire camp. You're right. I did exactly what you thought I did. And it took them considerable time to find me. (laughs) But find me they would. This is lesson 10 in uh, our study of the uh, Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're studying verses 1 through 29. This text is a perfect example of why I love to preach why I love to study the scriptures and share it with others because it's one of those texts that initially does not seem that significant and you're trying to figure out exactly how the pieces fit together. Um, And it was actually my awareness of the sandwich. It was Mark's sandwich that forced me to add the story of John the Baptist and losing his head. And that's why I came up with the title that I did. Now, you remember that uh, there, are some, there are some issues. If you've read this text this past week or studied it before, there are some questions that I call the tensions of the text. And these are the things that get my motor going. As I'm working away at studying, uh, these are the things that get me. Now, and I have to also be honest. This morning, I'm excited about this, and I can't wait to preach this were Wednesday or Thursday, you know, not quite so excited because these things are still hanging over my head and I'm trying to figure out how the pieces fit. And that's when you, you're saying to the Lord, it's uh, Friday and Sunday's coming. But here are the tensions of the text that I at least uh, motivated me. How is it when you read this text that the people of Nazareth can speak so highly of Jesus' words and works, and yet be people who fail to believe in him. How can you do that? You know, talking about all these wonderful things, and, and yet Jesus wonders at their unbelief. Uh, why does Mark spend so little time on the sending out of the twelve? When Matthew spends a whole chapter, Matthew chapter 10 is 42 verses. Why is it that Mark gives us this little teeny-weeny section uh, that deals with the same thing. And then uh, why does Mark, after after looking at the little uh, segment of the sending out of the twelve, why is it that Mark's account of the beheading of John is the longest and most detailed account? And you got to say, hey, he's making a choice about how much space he, he gives to each subject. Why so little to the sending of the twelve? Why so much about the loss of John's head? Um, there are reasons. So um, that's one of my puzzles. And the last is, and that's what forced me to change the, the, the number of verses we had this morning. What's the meaning of the uh, sandwich? 
What's the meaning of the sandwich? Now, if you go to the next slide, you'll see. The, the, the sandwich principle, I think, is generally accepted uh, among scholars. I'm not saying it doesn't happen other places in the scriptures, but it really is clear in, in Mark's gospel. So let's remind ourselves of the last sandwich we came to, and that's in Mark chapter 5. You remember that in uh, a sandwich is is two slices of bread with something in between, okay? So what you got here is you've got something that starts, then there's something that is in between, and then you come back to the first, as it were, slice of bread, and you have your two slices with this thing in between it, separating the two. So in, in chapter 5, you have verses 21 through 24, which speak of Jairus coming and pleading with the Lord Jesus to come lay his hands on his daughter who is on the verge of death. And then you see Jesus on his way with him. And then the meat, if you would, and I don't mean meat in the sense that that's necessarily the dominant theme, but the, the, the middle part of the sandwich and that's where the woman with the hemorrhage steals the healing from behind and Jesus stops the procession and, and, uh, and insists on finding out who has touched him, which, you know, results in the death of, of Jairus' daughter. So now everybody's saying, don't bother Jesus, it's all over, it's too late, just a teacher, what can he do? And then you come to the, the, the next slice of bread that finishes out the sandwich. Jesus goes to the house of Jairus, raises his daughter from the dead. And so you have this start, interruption, completion that goes on. The same thing takes place in our text. Verses 1 through 6 deal with the rejection of the Lord Jesus in, the, in his hometown of Nazareth. Then you have the sending out of the twelve. That's sort of the meat between the two slices of bread in verses 7 through 13. And then you have the rejection and the death of John uh, the Baptist in the losing of his head. Um, and so it seems to me that you, come, you start with the strong rejection thing, and then you actually have in the death of John a, a specific example of how that plays out between Herod and John the Baptist. So it was that that forced me to stretch the text to verse 29. So let's look first of all at the rejection of Jesus uh, at Nazareth. Now, one of the things that you need to really get in your head is these people thought they knew Jesus well, right? I mean, this, you know, this Jesus, he grew up in, in their neighborhood. He ran around. He played in their streets. All of this, they thought they knew Jesus well. In fact, they thought they knew Jesus better. And I think, you, you know, that in the Bible, Nazareth is the hick town. Do you not? You know, even, even Nathaniel says in John chapter 1, when he's being told about Jesus of Nazareth, he says... Could any good thing come from Nazareth? It, it, it is Hickville. Nobody ever speaks of Nazareth in a, in, in a positive, uh, affirming sort of way. So here are these people. Here's their one claim to fame. Well, he came from our town. You know how you can drive through cities and it'll say, this is the home, the birthplace of, so on and so forth. Well, that's, I think, what they thought. They thought that gave them a leg up. The reality is they don't know Jesus nearly as well as they suppose that they do. 
They spoke well of Jesus and his ministry, as we see, but there were these things that were the negatives. They knew Jesus' family. Now, in this scenario, that would be the four brothers, Mary, his mother, and the unnamed sisters. But that means there had to be at least six siblings, uh, I would take it, if sisters is plural, then you've got at least six members of the family in addition to the Lord Jesus. Then they knew Jesus, the carpenter. This is a fascinating thing. This is where the parallel accounts are most illustrative. You see, Matthew says that he is the son of the carpenter. That makes Joseph the carpenter. Jesus is the son of the carpenter. And uh, being a son of a carpenter is not a status thing. It's just not. I'm sorry. I love, by the way, I know some guys who are great carpenters. And I know Proverbs says that a man that does his work well will stand before kings. And I'm saying thank you to all the carpenters. But in this society, carpenters weren't the status symbol. Uh, and, and so when he says, as, as Mark does, not he is the son of a carpenter, he is the carpenter. That was saying, in effect, Jesus is a blue-collar person. And nobody expected anything great from blue-collar people. Now, when you lay that against the behavior and the attitude of the religious leaders... They were snobs, were they not? They were arrogant snobs. So Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, they always got to sit in the most prominent places. They dress in a way that sets them apart. They're just nasty people. But, but somehow they had begun to associate a religious leader with that kind of demeanor and, 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 and dress and carrying on. So how in the world can somebody who's spend his life as a carpenter. How can that count for anything? And my assumption is that he served in that role for a number of years. When Joseph died, as we assume he did, we don't have a verse for that, but he certainly is not mentioned, at least in, in, in our text in that sense. He is mentioned elsewhere as, as Joseph's son, but again, that was talking about that was his father, not that he's alive. He's spoken of as Mary's son here. So we assume that Joseph died. When Joseph died, Jesus is the oldest. He becomes the breadwinner and the leader of his family. And so I take it that Jesus, maybe from his teen years, began to be the leader and supporter of his family. And so everybody, when they had something, a chair broke or whatever it was, they needed a door put in, they called the carpenter. And so they couldn't get that out of their minds when they were thinking about Jesus. Now, here's where I think something really interesting comes to mind. And you just have to stop and ponder this for a minute. But what did they know about Jesus? Or what did they think they knew? I'm sure they had stories about this and stories about that, perhaps, that they could recall of of Jesus' growing up days, although if they knew him well, they would have said, now there was a different kid. He wasn't one of those other kids. He was like, whoa, what is this? Why can't other kids be like Jesus? I don't see that in what they're saying, but if they knew him well, they would have. Think about what we're told about Jesus' growing up days in the Gospels. How much? 
How many verses could you find? Almost none. So everything they thought they knew that somehow was important to them wasn't important enough to put in the Bible. Interesting, isn't it? Their knowledge was not essential knowledge. Here's what's worse. It's what they didn't know about Jesus that we find in the other Gospels. Nothing is said here about... See, they thought about Jesus, and it seems to me that when thinking about this as his hometown, yes, this is where Jesus lived after he came back from Egypt, after his parents brought him back from Egypt. You remember the story, right? But what they forgot was what happened before Egypt. They forgot the Gospels talking about the prophecies pertaining to the Lord Jesus and his birth. They forgot about all of the miraculous events surrounding the birth of our Lord Jesus that set him apart from everybody. Nothing is said in their words about, we remember Jesus. We remember the story about the shepherds. We remember the story about the magi. Nothing. Because they had Jesus linked with Nazareth, not with Bethlehem. And when you look through the life of our Lord Jesus, people keep saying, nobody important comes from there. He didn't come from there. That's the point. He came from Bethlehem. He was born uh, of the Messianic line. Okay, I'm getting all worked up. But all that's to say, they didn't really know nearly as much as they thought they did, and it was what they didn't know that was critical, in my opinion. Jesus looks at this, that is, this account of, of these people, he looks at their assessment of him, and he calls it unbelief. And it's not just uh, mamby-pamby unbelief, it is class A unbelief. If you look in the Bible and you try to find out how many times Jesus was amazed, it's not that many. One of them is his amazement in Matthew chapter 8 at the faith of the centurion. I understand authority, he says. You don't have to come to my house. All you have to do is say the word. Jesus said, man. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Here's a Gentile. Jesus is amazed at his faith. Here are his fellow citizens, and Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Now, you've got to have, that's the last statement in that section, and it is what we're to come away with. They are not only unbelievers, they are unbelievers whose unbelief amazes Jesus. That says to me it's not too good. And it says then, Jesus was not able to do a great miracle. That's a whale of a lot different from Matthew, who says Jesus didn't do any great miracle. See, it's one thing to say you didn't do it. It's another thing to say you couldn't do it, which is what Mark says, which raises a question, does it not? Does man's unbelief tie God's hands. Does God's, does man's unbelief somehow prevent God from being God? Okay, 
I'm not going to go into this in detail because we could go down the theological trail, but let me just say this. Every person who comes from unbelief to faith, from death to life, does so in spite of their unbelief. Is that not right? We were enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. Uh, Ephesians, uh, 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 Romans chapter 5, uh, it says, while we were yet enemies, God saved us. Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. None who seeks after God. Folks, the only way people come to faith is when Jesus gives them faith. All right? So let's, not, let's get that straight. But you also have to come to terms with the fact that there are verses that talk about the consequences of unbelief. And so if God wills, if he purposes to do something, folks, your unbelief is not going to keep him from doing his work. Trust me. He may trample you in the process, but your unbelief is not going to keep God from doing his job. Now, there may be times that God lets you face the consequences of your unbelief. And it seems to me you find that, for instance, in James, when he talks about the man who is asking in doubt should not expect to receive something from God. So both of those elements are true. And in this case, unbelief certainly limited. Now, here's the interesting part about that. In their minds, it was the lack of miracles... Because that's, by the way, we're going to pick this up in Luke 4, and I don't want to go there yet. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, you're going to say to me, hey, we heard about what you did 25 miles away down there in Capernaum. So rev it up, pop the clutch. We'd like to see what you can do here. And it better be better than that, right? Well, um, the bottom line is it wasn't, but they thought that it was the lack of miracles that excused their unbelief. And Jesus says it's their unbelief that explains the lack of miracles. That's his take on it. Now the sending out of the 12 in verses 7 through 13. This is the meat of uh, Mark's sandwich, if you would. And uh, it begins the sending out of the 12. One of the, some of the translations will indicate that. This is the first instance where the 12 are sent out by twos to proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons, um, to heal the sick, interestingly, with the anointing of oil. That's probably all I'll say about that. But to heal the sick, and actually in Matthew's account, it says to raise the dead. It does not say that here. And it may be because that comes later when the apostles go forth in the book of Acts. Notice the brevity of the account compared to Matthew chapter 10. And you've got to say, folks, the brevity of this account is meant to tell us something. Just as a lengthy account tells us something, a brief account tells us something as well. Now, notice what we do find. We do find that sending the 12 out is a response of Jesus to the unbelief of Nazareth. As a result of Nazareth's unbelief, Jesus now goes out to the villages beyond. He leaves them, and he also sends out his disciples to go to these distant places. That's going to even expand more, and I'll get to that in a, in a moment or two. The Lord's instructions to the disciples, and that's what we have, brief as it is. The Lord's instructions to the disciples about what they don't take are very informative. 
because the preaching of the gospel, which is the preaching of repentance, is it not? The calling for repentance. The preaching of the gospel requires these people, wherever the disciples go, it requires them to respond. I mean, here's the way it works, folks. If you got two guys and they come into a village and they don't have an extra cloak and they don't have meals and they don't have a bag full of money so they can't go to McDonald's, what do you think is necessary? Well, I'll tell you what, somebody had better put them up. Somebody had better say, stay at my house tonight, eat dinner at our house tonight. And given the fact that they are casting out demons and healing the sick, that's pretty cheap work. Is it not? I mean, who wouldn't pay in the sense of having somebody stay at your house? And by the way, Jesus tells them, don't collect money. I take it that unlike all the other guys that were going out, they had a bag. The offering plate got passed all the time. Jesus is saying, don't take money. Just accept a place to sleep and food to eat. And that meant those people had to respond. It's also interesting then, if they didn't respond, it prompts the disciples to do what Jesus told them to do, and that was move on. Why would you stay in a place where they don't give you a bed? Why would you stay in a town where nobody gives you food? Move on. That's what Jesus said. Because unbelief leads to the gospel going out beyond you, is, is the way I understand the thrust of all that. Notice, too, that our Lord's instruction to his disciples assumes rejection. Not always. Not always. It assumes rejection. In other words, he tells them, here's what you are to do if they don't receive you and your message. So, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, sends out the twelve, two by two, and says, here's what happens when you're rejected. Then you come to John the Baptist, and obviously, folks, (laughs) he is rejected, right? By Herod, but he's rejected. I think that's pretty much clear. Okay, so let's go then to the rejection and death of uh, John the Baptist in verses 14 through 29. Lengthy section and the lengthiest of the accounts of, uh, of the death of John. I want you to notice that the, the similarities between Jesus' rejection and the rejection of John the Baptist. One, neither of them were found guilty of an offense worthy of death. Is that not true? Neither of them was found guilty of an offense worthy of death. Secondly, what they were guilty of was exposing the sin of the people who rejected them. Yeah, they're guilty, all right. John the Baptist said to Herod, your wife shouldn't be your wife. Which didn't put him on very good ground with Herodias, as you can see. And that, of course, is where all of this leads. So in both cases, the governing official did not want to execute. They were forced by some outside pressure to do so. Pilate's wife said to him, don't do it. He's an innocent man. Leave it alone. Pilate kept trying to find a way to get Jesus off the hook, so to speak. And so he offers Barabbas, assuming nobody would take him. And of course, they did. 
And John the, uh, I mean, uh, Herod did not want, it's very clear, he did not want to put John to death either. He feared him and he was fascinated by hearing him. Didn't like all that he had to say, but there was a fascination there. Very similar, I think, to the way in which the people of Nazareth responded to Jesus. They're saying, wow, this guy's incredible. But, you know, there was this, well, there's these other things that I don't like so much. Okay, so end, end of the story is the, uh, the disciples come uh, in both accounts and take the body and bury it. Now, here is where we come to Herod and the death of, of John. Notice that it's the popularity of Jesus that provokes this sense of guilt and angst on the part of Herod, who has already executed John. So in Herod's mind, there are all kinds of people, the rumors are going around, who is this Jesus? Very similar to the questions Jesus, the question Jesus asked and the answers he got at the time of, uh, of the great confession by Peter. Some say you're Elijah, the prophet, uh, various people, uh, and, and uh, here, those things were being said, but Herod said, in agreement with some others, this is John the Baptist coming back to haunt me. This is John. I am really in trouble. I knew I shouldn't have done it, and now here it is. And now the story goes on. It tells us that although Herod was unhappy with John's indictment for his illicit marriage, it was his wife who wanted John dead, and it was actually Herod who protected him and kept him alive and had this fascination and fear even of John, no intent to put him uh, to death at all. But when Herod gets, I take it, well lubricated and uh, with, with uh, some spirits, uh, then he begins to make uh, offers and promises he, he cannot or he should not keep. And when uh, Herodias' daughter says, I want the head of John the Baptist, he yielded to his fear of what his peers would think and sent reluctantly sent to have John uh, beheaded. Isn't that really a foreshadowing of the death of the Lord Jesus? Isn't this really a picture of what's going to happen uh, yet again? And it's also a specific illustration of the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth and its results. Okay, let's look for a moment at Luke's account. There is the parallel account of the rejection of Jesus in Matthew. And when you come to Luke's account, the temptation is to say to yourself, it must be a different. It must be a different time. It must be a different account. I just, I, I admit, I initially set the text aside myself and said it's not the same. But look, look at the similarities to Mark's account. Jesus comes to his hometown, which Luke calls Nazareth. I guess we all figured that out. But his hometown is not Capernaum; it's Nazareth. So he comes to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue and teaches, same as Mark's account. His words favorably impress those. They're saying, oh man, what gracious words. Where are these coming from? <laughs> and they take note of Jesus' roots. Isn't this 
Joseph's son? Now, here's what's interesting in my mind. Luke picks up where Matthew and Mark leave off. They're not different, conflicting, as in two different events. They're not conflicting accounts at all. Matthew and Mark take us this far. Luke picks up at that point and takes us further. In other words, it's like Luke is saying, Mark called their rejection of Jesus unbelief. Unbelief that amazed Jesus. It looks innocuous. It looks harmless. Look at where unbelief can lead. And Luke is the place where we go. So when you come to Luke's account, notice that Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Nowhere in Matthew and Mark are we told what Jesus said in the synagogue. Only people saying, wow, it's wisdom. Where did this message come from? Now we know what the message is. Luke 61, 1 and 2. Jesus read it. And then said, today in your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus is saying as plainly as words can put it, I am your Messiah. And people are saying, wow, now that's something. But what Jesus does is now, instead of leaving it to them, if he left it with them, it would be like we find it left in Mark and Matthew. Jesus now picks up this thing and he presses them further than they intend to go. And he says to them, I know what you're thinking. What you're thinking is, okay, you did this impressive stuff in Capernaum. Now, show us your stuff. What do you got that will not only match, but excel what we've already heard about you? Let's see your stuff. And... Uh, then he basically says to them, no prophet, it's essentially the same argument, no prophet has honor in his own country, right? Physician, heal yourself, and then prophets don't receive honor in their own country, so they've got to prove themselves. Now here's where Jesus really stretches them. He says in this way, I'm identifying myself with two prophets in your Israelite history, Elijah and Elisha. These were men who were not received and welcomed by their Israelite brothers. They were rejected just like I am. And what was the result? That's where Jesus is going. What is the result of rejection of the prophetic message which says, here's God speaking? He says, well, in the case of Elijah, he went to Sidon. Did he not? Uh, no, he went to, what am I saying here? He went to uh, where, where the uh, widow is. Good night. No, I've, it, it's where uh, Jezebel was from. Luke chapter 4. Is it Sidon? Why am I all of a sudden going ballistic? All right. All right. Which is going to be interesting, by the way. But he goes to Sidon and he ministers to a Gentile widow. It wasn't to the, to the widows in Israel during that time of famine. It wasn't to them that he ministered. It was to this Gentile widow. Now he goes on and he says, and let's talk about Elisha. There were many lepers in, in Israel in Elisha's day, but he didn't heal them. He healed Naaman the Syrian. 
Do you get the message? The message is, if Israel rejects Jesus as their Messiah, the gospel's going to the Gentiles. That's the message. By the way, that's exactly what you see in Acts chapter 22, when uh, Paul gives his testimony to that mob, and he ends up in verse 21 by saying, And the Lord said to me, Go to the Gentiles. Remember? At, in verse 22, it just poof! It just exploded. Away with such a guy. He shouldn't live, they said. <laughs> they just couldn't stand the gospel going to Gentiles. That was the unpardonable prophetic sin. Jesus said it, and as a result, those people now are trying, the people that have, that have said, what wonderful words these are. When he gives them the full sweep of what happens when you reject his word, goes to the Gentiles, they're trying to push him off cliff. Seems to me, Luke is saying, this is where it goes. It looks nice and friendly and peaceable and all of that stuff, does it not? In, uh, in Mark, in Luke, he presses them. And now you see what unbelief looks like when you really hear what you don't want to hear. So what does Mark contribute to all of this? By his brevity. Here's my take. Mark strips away all of the peripheral data so that you come down to two basic realities. That's what Mark does. He says, here it is. People are amazed. They don't challenge the origin in this text. They don't challenge the origin of Jesus' miracles. They don't say it's the power of Satan, whatever. They say, these are wondrous things. We acknowledge he's doing wondrous things. We acknowledge the wisdom of what he's saying. We are amazed at his teaching. All that positive stuff. Here it is. And over here, they're saying, but, but you know, there's these elements that somehow, they seem to create attention. And I, and I pointed out, the things they think they understand that are attention are not really accurate information. If they knew the facts about Jesus' origins, those wouldn't be a problem at all. But here you have these two things. And so what we're forced to do, and why this text is uncomfortable for us, is we come to it and we see Jesus' indictment and amazement at their unbelief, and we're saying, well, I don't know. I mean, look, they're saying this is true and this is true, so what's so bad about that? You know what's bad about it? They didn't believe. They didn't believe. This is really doubt, my friends. This is doubt, and doubt is not belief. Now, haven't we already seen that with Jesus? He says to his disciples, when they're all shook up about the storm, your fear is unbelief. He rebukes them for their fear. He says to the woman, don't fear. Your faith has saved you. He says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Believe. Their doubt is unbelief. And what Mark is saying is, as decent as it looks, it's wrong. It's sin. And Jesus leaves them and goes uh, elsewhere. All right, let's talk about some conclusions. Oh, by the way, the thing I did not mention to you that I should have, not once in this text are the religious leaders of Israel ever mentioned. Think about that. Not once. This is not Mark chapter 3 or Mark chapter 2 
Mark chapter 2, man lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven, and they're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, nobody could forgive sins but God. That's the religious leaders. Early chapter 3, man with a withered hand, Jesus goes ahead and heals him on the Sabbath, and they say, this man has to die. That's the leaders. Later chapter 3, the leaders are saying, Jesus does his miracles by the power of Satan, not the power of God. That's the leaders. This, my friends, is the blue-collar neighbors of Jesus from Nazareth, not their leaders. Here's why I'm saying this. It's easy for us, it's easy for me to make the leaders the bad boys as though this poor, innocent flock of people are just blindly following their leaders along and the real bad boys are always the leaders and the poor people, they just don't know better. This text tells me that John is absolutely right when he says he came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was rejected by Israel, period. Not some elite group within Israel who forced the rest to do what they didn't want to do. Jesus was rejected by Israel. All right. That's the theme. That's what draws these three pieces of of text together. They're all about rejection. The rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, polite though it may seem. The rejection of the disciples when they go out and how they're to respond to that. And the rejection of John the Baptist as he is executed. I want to really get you on this one uh, because it really caught me as surprising. I think the logic of Mark is, here's all the evidence for Jesus, and yet here's their unbelief and their basis for it. Their basis, Jesus grew up here. Oh, that's terrific. Terrific evidence against Jesus that validates their unbelief. We live in a day of intellectual unbelief, and and you've got a bunch of intellectual agnostics or atheists who try to peddle the message, only stupid people believe in Jesus. Is that not right? Am I not right? That somehow it's the foolish people who aren't thinking straight. If we only had our heads screwed on our our shoulders rightly, we would see the light and we would reject the gospel as foolishness. You know what Mark tells us? Unbelief is foolish. Unbelief is foolish. Not belief. You look at this and you say, how could they do that? That's the point. It isn't rational when people choose not to believe. Mark wants to see us, along with Luke, where unbelief leads. That's why he gives the story of John the Baptist. Herod, like the people of Nazareth, wavered in this decision about there's this about Jesus and there's this about Jesus and somehow we just can't land on one side of that fence or the other. That was Herod. And a day came when he landed, and he landed in the wrong place. That's where unbelief leads, to aggressive opposition. You know, in the last days, you read the book of Revelation, rejection and opposition is not going to be polite toward believers. It's going to get nasty. That's what it does in this account with Jesus. It gets nasty because... 
the wavering unbelief eventually leads to aggressive opposition in the Gospels. You look at Jesus' words about Elijah and Elisha, about the Gospel going to foreigners. I'm cheating on on myself now, but I'm going to say to you, when you come to Mark chapter 7, and the theological issue comes up about where uncleanness comes from, and Jesus says, It isn't about external foods that you take in. That isn't what defiles you. Defilement comes from inside and comes out, not from outside coming in. It's the heart that is defiled. And after that dispute with the religious leaders, Jesus heads on and he goes to Tyre and to Sidon, chapter 7, verse 24 and following. Folks, that's Gentile territory. That's where Gentiles, at least, are, are a much more prominent part of the population. That's where the Syrophoenician, let's call her, the Canaanite woman, asks for the healing of her demonized daughter. And Jesus talks about the crumbs that, that go down to the, to, the, you know, to the puppies. And she says even the puppies get some crumbs. Gentile. Then Jesus moves on, and you'll see the feeding of the 4,000. In Gentile territory. The reason why the disciples, in my mind, did not make the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000 was 5,000 Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 was 4,000, by and large, non-Jews. It never entered the minds of the disciples that Jesus would respond to the needs of Gentiles in the same way he would respond to the needs of Jews. So they didn't say, oh, well, it happened this way over here, it'll happen this way over here. No, they they saw those as two separate territories and they'd do everything they could to keep them that way. That's why Peter hollers in Acts chapter 10 about eating that food that uh, might be unclean. Mm -mm, He's not going down that trail. Here's the interesting thing. In Mark 7:31, Jesus goes to Take a look. Where is it? Decapolis. Now, where in my mind do I think about Decapolis? It is the home territory, interestingly, of X Legion. Remember when Legion, I say ex-Legion because you can't call him Legion after he's relieved from the 2,000 demons. Ex-Legion begs to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, go to your home turf and your people, like Jesus went to Nazareth, and tell them the things that I have done. And the people were amazed. Isn't it interesting that... Ex-Legion becomes the front man, the publicity man for Jesus who's coming there with the gospel. Unbelief of the gospel from the Jews leads to the proclamation of the gospel to Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, Acts chapter 28, and on and on uh, we should and could go. Okay, here's the thing I want you to see. Wavering, let's call it doubt, because I think wavering is based on doubt. It certainly isn't based on faith. 
Wavering is unbelief. Wavering is unbelief. See, I think we think of unbelief as as the more aggressive stuff. We can see from Luke chapter 4, that's unbelief. But when you put Mark chapter 6 alongside Luke chapter 4, what you find out is the wavering unbelief becomes the hostile, murderous unbelief of Luke. Same event, just later in the story, if I understand it correctly. Listen to these words about wavering. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah on Mount Carmel to the nation Israel who keeps wavering between God and gods. And he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. It reminds me a little bit of Joshua. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Isn't it saying that you can't waver, you can't oscillate between these two, hold them in suspension, someday maybe pass judgment for one or the other? You've got to make a commitment. Wavering is unbelief. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Speaking of Abraham and the promise of the seed through Sarah, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Is that not saying that wavering is unbelief and unbelief is the opposite of faith? Says that to me. James chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Here's the way I understand it. If it comes to the salvation of the lost, wavering over the gospel and not committing yourself to Christ and his work on the cross is unbelief and it's damnable. For the Christian, wavering is unbelief. It's not damnable, but don't expect God to answer your prayers. Don't ask God for things when you really don't believe that he could or would do it. Now, I'm not talking about the name it and claim it stuff. There are times when God's answer is no. But I'm suggesting that in the world in which we live, is it possible that the reason why the miraculous power of God that we see in the book of Acts is not evident amongst us because of wavering unbelief rather than because of dispensational shift? I have to admit, I listened to a tape uh, by... uh, A.W. Tozier, back in the 70s, he was up in Canada, and he was talking about the immutability of God, meaning God doesn't change. And he said this, he stopped right in the middle of what he was saying, and he said, the immutability of God. If God is immutable, why do we think he's different today than he was in the book of Acts? Ooh. That's interesting. Is it possible that the reason why the power of God is not more evident in our lives, in our church, in our community, in the evangelical church, is it possible that we just live in in doubt and unbelief? It seems to me this text really grabs us uh, by the shoulders and uh, shakes us. 
another, I have what I call further thoughts. And I got to admit, it starts in the shower this morning. If I can quickly get out and write something down before it leaves this sieve, it starts there. And then when the elders are praying, I drag out my bulletin, start writing down things. And then during the, the worship time, some more. So I need to have a separate section that's outside of PowerPoint because I haven't even gotten there yet. But here's a thought. I was thinking about the doubts of, of the people of Nazareth. And I was thinking about my doubts. My doubts are as ill-informed as Nazareth's. My doubts are ill-informed. The things that I think are rationale for not acting or not believing are not rational and they're not real. They're supposed. Let's face it, folks. Most all of our worry is about things that are never going to happen, right? But man, we'll camp on that stuff till the cows come home. Our doubts are ill-informed. That's why the Word of God is so vital. The only place to pitch your tent is in God's Word. That's the basis for our certainty. That's the basis for our faith. And that is the basis for our action. I couldn't help but think about this text in relationship to uh, Mark chapter 4, where he says, remember, be careful how you listen. For to the degree that you embrace it, it will be given to you. And it occurs to me that that's really related to this. The truth was brought to the people at Nazareth. And he says then, remember, even what you have will be taken away. The truth that was brought to Nazareth became nothing because of unbelief. We must act upon what we know to be true from the word of God in order for more truth to become evident to us. So, I would say this. It's possible that someone in the hearing of my voice has been thinking about Jesus and putting it off, but they've got this sort of Nazareth thing. I know Jesus was a great man. I know he was a powerful teacher, did all these miracles, but I think it's time to make a decision, friend. And to fail to make a decision is a decision to be an unbeliever. That's a serious thing. For Christians, we need to have faith. The just will live by faith. The very same faith by which men are saved is the faith by which Christians must live. And faith and doubt don't mix. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. What wisdom, as we look at your word, what wisdom is there? What power is there? May we embrace the truth and act upon it in faith. May we be known as a people who believe in what you have said and done. In Jesus' name, amen.